five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. Before we get to today's guest, I wanted to spend a minute mentioning some updates we've done to our website. We periodically update the website design and functionality. Recently, we added some new navigation links to our main menu bar for some timely subjects and new categories. New category links include business and Earth observation. New timely subject links include the Lunar Gateway, an RCM, which stands for the RadarSat Constellation Mission, which is about to launch next month. As well, at the top right of any page, you'll find a search box where you can do a fast keyword search of the over 1,500 stories we've published to date. We've got more upgrades and new content coming later this year. Okay, my guest today is Mike Gold. Vice President, Regulatory and Policy at Maxar Technologies. For this podcast, we're going to talk to Mike about his other role, that of Chair of NASA's Advisory Council, Regulatory and Policy Issues Committee. The committee was created in the summer of 2018 to look at how NASA could further commercialize its activities. Mike is one of 15 members, mostly from industry, that meet several times a year, including with NASA's other advisory council committees. Committee members include longtime space players such as Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin, to new space companies, SpaceX and Blue Origin, to name a few. In his first meeting last November, the committee published its first observations, findings, and recommendations. The committee tackled a broad range of ideas from export controls, intellectual property, supporting space-based commercial development, private sector habitats, logos, advertising, astronaut endorsements, and space research. Listen in. Welcome, Mike, to the Space Q podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. Long time listener, first time caller. There you go. Uh, or <laughs> first time guest. Um, so <laughs> last summer, NASA created a new committee under its advisory council called the Regulatory and Policy Issues Committee. You're the chair of the committee and have been tasked with studying how NASA could expand its commercial activities. Before we discuss what the committee is doing and some of the recommendations that came from the first meeting last November, could you explain to our listeners how this committee came to be? Sure. So, you know, as I like to tell uh, engineers, and I get in trouble for this, sometimes the technical part is the easy part of our world, that the regulatory issues, policy, legal, financial can often be as challenging as anything that we face, unfortunately, from a technical or an engineering perspective. Uh, you've often probably heard me joke that second only to the ITAR, you know, gravity was the only thing that had the best chance of keeping rockets off the ground. 
And I think this administration has done an extraordinary job in terms of understanding and focusing on regulatory burdens and problems. Space Policy Directive 2 is an excellent example of that, where there is an explicit focus in ensuring that we reduce the red tape and allow innovation and enterprise to flourish. And this is a reflection of that, that this administrator and this administration, again, is very focused on tackling these issues to make sure that every dollar we spend is done wisely, that we minimize barriers to entrepreneurship. And I'm just very excited to be a part of helping that along. And you were named the the committee's first chair. What's your approach to leading the committee and working with other committee members? So I think it's very important that we work in a cooperative fashion with the other committees. As a matter of fact, with the announcement of 2024, uh, the uh, new chair of the Human Exploration Operations Committee and I are already talking about joint activities. That again, there's both technical issues and regulatory and policy issues, and they're both very important. And I'm very much looking forward to working with my colleague, who is Wayne Hale, by the way, the chair of the EO committee, to tackle these. So, for example, you know, Wayne is dealing with issues of architectures and technology, but if we're going to do this in time, we need procurement reform. We need human resources reform so that you know, NASA has more flexibility, certainly to pay people what they're worth and to make hiring decisions you know, much more quickly. Um, additionally, the procurement system, you know, we need much more flexibility and freedom there as well. So if we're going to achieve 2024, it's going to require an effort by all of us. And the Regulatory and Policy Committee working with the HEO Committee is just one example of that. And then within the committee, it's very important that we balance a broad number of voices. And you'll see in the membership of our committee that we have you know, long-established companies such as Lockheed Martin and Boeing, uh, and then some more you know, new entrants. So obviously, they've done incredible things with SpaceX and Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic. And what I consider one of the great services of the FACAs, the Federal Advisory Committees, is taking the chorus of different voices, finding the common ground, and moving forward with actions that we as an industry as a whole can agree upon. Now, before we actually get into what you've done with the committee so far, I'm going to digress just a little bit and ask you this. Since you've had some experience in dealing with the Canadian government and Canadian businesses, do you think a committee or a committee structure like this uh, would be useful in Canada? I really do. I think that the Federal Advisory Committee structure is something that I haven't seen internationally and is one of the great advantages and benefits of the American system. As you know, we're going through a tremendous transformation in the space world, which used to be dominated, if not exclusively, by government activities and is transitioning to much more numerous and more robust commercial activities. So it's become an absolute necessity to have industry with a seat at the table to work together with government. We can achieve much more together than we can apart, but there needs to be 
a formal vehicle for industry to interface with the government, to provide feedback, to come up with ideas, and again, to work together. The FACA system, the Federal Advisory Committee Act system, is wonderful and has performed extraordinarily well as a vehicle to get that done. You know, there may be some changes that we'd like to make to the system, but generally it's been of great benefit to both industry and to government. And I've been surprised that more countries, especially Canada, hasn't adopted a system more like that. And I remain very open, by the way, to working with Canadian officials or anyone else from around the globe that would like to learn more about how to leverage FACA or how to set up an industry council to interface with government. All right. Well, we do have the Space Advisory Board in Canada, but it is made up of more than just industry. Uh, and it has a bit of a, I suppose, somewhat, no, it has a bit of a different role than, than the council uh, as it's uh, uh, created in the U.S. Okay. So let's talk about the, what the committee's done so far. If I understand correctly, you had your first meeting in November and your next meeting is at the end of this month. Um, after your first meeting, you made observations, findings, and, ex- and recommendations on export control, intellectual property, space research, space-based commercial development, enhancing ISS and private sector habitat space station utilization in LEO and beyond, logos, advertising, and astronaut endorsement. That's a broad list. You're tackling a lot. So, it, it was an ambitious agenda, Mark. I can see that. It makes for very good reading, which I will make sure our readers have access to. Um, what were some of the notable findings from that first meeting? Sure. And, you know, as you go through that list, uh, I remain pleasantly surprised that we were able to get through as much as we did in a single meeting. And that is a tribute to the membership of this committee. And again, as I described, we've got a broad cross-section of industry. And to get officials from Lockheed, from Boeing and SpaceX and Blue to all come together on these topics just indicates how much common ground there actually is in the space industry. And often I feel like we're just fighting over these false dichotomies, but when you put good people around a table, you really can make robust progress, which is exactly what we did. In regard to the individual recommendations, let me begin with export control, one of my favorite topics. And here, again, to get back to the theme of transitions, if we're going to move from the International Space Station to commercial habitats attached to ISS or free-flying private sector space stations, or even as we talk about gateway, the same export control exceptions and waivers that the ISS enjoys also need to be granted to those other human spaceflight systems. Basically, it acknowledges the fact that if you've got a space station, exposure to hardware is going to occur with internationals, and there's going to be a need for expedited reviews to get payloads, which can be very important or even life-saving, onto transportation systems and rockets. And that's why those exemptions exist for the ISS. We need to make sure that those occur for all of our other human spaceflight platforms, be they private or public. Uh, Intellectual property reform, again, very important that we need people to invest in low Earth orbit commercialization. And there's some great opportunities and potentially phenomenal products that can be created via space-based manufacturing, via pharmaceutical development, 
But just like here on Earth, you need to be able to maintain your intellectual property. People aren't going to invest if you don't get to keep your IP. So without going into the details, that's what we're trying to achieve with that recommendation. And in the interest of time, I'll just describe one more, which is the Coast Bar, that we need to ensure that and they use the term planetary protection. And I'm not a big fan of that term. I actually prefer preventing harmful contamination because that's the language that's in the Outer Space Treaty. And that's really what Coast Bar Committee on Space Resources are. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, we're trying to prevent harmful contamination of a celestial body, such as Mars, and we're trying to prevent harmful contamination of Earth, of anything coming back. But when the Coast Bar was writing these rules initially, no one could imagine the human spaceflight missions to Mars, the role of the private sector, private sector missions to Mars or other celestial bodies, and they really didn't take account of those possibilities. Now that we're in the world that we are today, we need a refresh. We need to go through the rules and make sure that they're, yes, accomplishing their goals, but aren't prohibiting anything, aren't doing anything that's counterproductive. Because, again, we all need to do this together. The, the science community does want to maintain pristine environments, make sure that they can do science effectively, and human spaceflight wants to explore in an industry with them. And we should all be working together because the more human spaceflight missions that occur, the more private sector missions that occur, the more science can be done. So there isn't actually a conflict here. There's a complement. And what we did with, you know, what I was referring to as the Grand Coast Bar Compromise of 2018, um, thanks to the leadership of Thomas Rebuckin, the Associate Administrator for the Science Mission Directorate, we're creating a, a multidisciplinary task force to review the Coast Bar regs to make sure that, yes, they're accomplishing their goals, but that we're also enabling additional human spaceflight missions and private sector activity to the benefit of all. And I was so proud of the committee and, again, grateful to Thomas and Len Fisk, the president of Coast Bar. Len's actually the first American president of Coast Bar, and he's been tremendously helpful and supportive during this process. So to have all of us in the room agreeing to put together the task force and working on this issue together, uh, I think was a great and early success by the committee. And I'll just say that the Coast Bar actually is the Committee on Space Research, for those who don't know. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Would your committee have existed five years ago? So in a manner of speaking, the committee did exist in a form five years ago, potentially, that there's a history in the NAC, I believe, where they had a commercial space committee. And I think that was dissolved several years ago. Um, so there were echoes of what we've got today. But certainly five years ago, and perhaps if you go back a little further, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it could not have existed because there wasn't the robust private sector development and entities that might not have been as necessary that as we look at the technological transformations, the transformations in terms of who's conducting the business, that's not just new technologies, but you need new regulations to deal with it. 
you can't have the same regulatory structure when you've got completely different players, completely different activities, and an evolution technologically. So I think the need at this time is greater than it ever has been because just like with COSPAR, the regs must evolve to reflect today's reality. Otherwise, we're going to fall behind, not just at NASA, but as a country. Now, let's talk a little bit about the International Space Station. Um, going forward, how, how can the space station be better used for commercial research and development efforts as you see it? So let me begin with the fact that the ISS is an absolutely critical resource towards developing LEO commercialization. You know, there's simply nothing like it. There never has been. And I would like to be able to leverage the ISS for every moment that we can get to obtain value from the station, not only for the agency, but for private sector development. It's an absolutely unique facility and laboratory, not only for science, but for business. But in order to do that, we need to make sure that it's a regulatory environment on the ISS that's conducive to commercial and private sector development and growth. And we already mentioned the intellectual property issues. If we want to fully leverage the ISS, we need to make sure that people can maintain in total their IP. That if you invest in developing new technologies, new drugs that can improve people's health and make our lives better here on Earth, you deserve to reap those benefits. And if we don't have a system like that, then we won't be able to fully utilize the space station. And this is an example where the technology exists and isn't a problem, again, the ISS is a tremendous resource, but the regulatory environment needs to be changed. And I'm hoping that you know, NASA actually, uh, I believe, wants to do this and wants to change matters. And now we need assistance from Capitol Hill to address that kind of issue. I'm also excited about the potential for private sector habitat you know, to be attached to the International Space Station. I've just always believe that would also create an even better environment for the success of LEO commercialization activities and would be a wonderful pathfinder toward an eventual free-flying system. But that would be a great way to start by environment where we could not only test the technologies but demonstrate the business case for what eventually will be a private sector system. What about the future of the space station beyond its current mandate? Uh, I mean, what are we going to do with it? Are we just going to break it apart and uh, Russians decide they're going to use their parts? Some parts are going to get, you know, uh, potentially reused. Uh, I mean, is there any, any way that it can be used, let's say, turned over to the commercial sector, or is it just too expensive to maintain to make it cost effective from the commercial sector's purposes? So I think it depends. You know, unfortunately, I can't give a clear answer without knowing you know, what the parameters would be and how something would be turned over to the private sector and what the costs would be, what the contracts would look like. Again, that sort of question is a large regulatory issue. 
So I wouldn't want to take anything off the table you know, in terms of eventual possibilities, but I think the cost of operation, legal liability, there's just a lot that would need to be unpacked in terms of whether that's a realistic path or not. And we would need to know from companies and entrepreneurs and investors, you know, if that's something that's viable. Again, I will say this relative to the ISS, that we should take advantage of every moment that we can get with the system. And I think that the most important thing that we can do is find ways to generate demand. That again, the platforms there, the capabilities exist and have been proven for you know low Earth orbit. The ISS is our greatest example. But if I can quote Bill Gerstenmeier, demand, demand, demand. That we have so much work to do in terms of driving the demand side, whether that's tourism, working with sovereign clients, manufacturing products in space, filming advertisements, media, what have you, we've got a lot of work to do in that area. And if we can be successful and drive demand, then I think there's a broad array of possibilities that exist for the future of the ISS and even free-flying systems. If the demand isn't there now, will it be there in five years? And if demand keeps being, uh, isn't as strong as, as we hope it will be, what does that say for companies like the one that you used to work for, Bigelow, who want to put up their own stations? So as I describe issues like IP, we've got a lot of work to do to ensure that we've got an environment where commercial and private sector growth can flourish. So I don't think that we can say, just looking at the ISS now, and that maybe we aren't experiencing robust demand from a private sector, that it won't happen or that there aren't you know possibilities to be explored i think that you know we're just starting to get low cost and robust access to the iss via the new commercial crew systems and as you know one of the limiting factors on the iss has always been the number of seats that you can get with the soyuz to get people off the station if we can get more people onto the station and they can conduct scientific experiments, they can conduct more commercial activities, then we'll be in a much better position to know what realistically can and cannot be done from demand and from a business case side. Right now, people compare the ISS to a laboratory where the astronauts have to spend 80%, 90% of the time working to maintain the laboratory. Again, I love the terrestrial analogy where if you had a lab on Earth and the scientists there had to spend 90% of their time maintaining the lab, what would demand look like there? You know, how much quality science would be done, what kind of discoveries would be made, et cetera. So in a way, I really think we're just at the beginning of the utilization story as we try and enhance, you know, the number of people that we can get on the ISS what they can do in terms of regulatory reform, and then let's see where we're at. So I think there are some substantial differences between where we've been and hopefully where we're going to be. How many uh, people do you think the space station can accommodate without actually adding any more, let's say, 
commercial habitat modules to it? Yeah, I don't know. Um, forgive me, that's one I'm going to push off to those with more engineering knowledge. I thought I'd throw well, it at you. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, I'll take this part of it, Mark, that I would say that it can handle more. I don't know how many more, but as I mentioned before, at least my understanding is that the number of people that have been on ISS has been at least somewhat artificially capped by, you know, how many can come down in the Soyuz, on the two Soyuzes that are attached. If we have commercial crew systems that can allow for an increase of one or two crew members, even that could be substantial. That then we've got one, two, three people dedicating the vast majority of their time to developing potential demand. And I think that could result in substantive change, even if it's just an additional person or two. So I can't say how many, but I do think even some moderate increases could have very promising results. So in the future, we could have one or we could have like two caretaker engineers just to maintain the space station while other people are actually doing more of the research and helping to build the the demand side. I think it would make a world of difference. Again, just to go back to the terrestrial analogy, is there a lab where the scientists have to maintain the lab? No, you know, that would be crazy. You know, you hire a janitorial staff or the HVAC folks to, you know, take care and make sure that the facility is running. In no other context have I seen the expectation of, you know, new science and quality, you know, processes to go on if the people who are working in the building have to spend all of their time or the vast majority of it supporting the building. And that's why when we get questions about, well, what has ISS done? We've never really been able yet to make that great leap to have people on the ISS that can dedicate the vast majority of their time to science and commercial activities. We're about to get there. And I think as we do, then we're really going to see what the value is and what demand can be. So I remain optimistic. All right. I just have a couple questions. questions left. I know we've pressed for time. Um, Another of the committee's recommendations had to do with logos, both NAFOS and other partners. And this is an interesting thing to me. uh, What's the reasoning behind advocating broader use of these logos? Sure. So uh, I'm from Montana. Have you been out to Montana before? No, no, not Montana. I've been to Idaho. Yeah, well, close enough. You know, you've seen a beautiful place. And when I go home, you know, I encounter confusion about, oh, is NASA still you know, in business that we've got? Oh, I thought the private sector took over, um, et cetera. And a lot of misperceptions relative to what's occurring. And I think people sometimes miss the amazing things that the agency is doing. And logos, I think, play a role in that that I've never understood that when you've got a program or an activity that's sponsored by NASA, is primarily paid for by NASA or NASA's partner, that you don't see the NASA logos. Probably the most public example of that would be the CRS launches, that there's no NASA logo on the patches, there's no NASA logo on the rockets. And I think that's a shame because it 
gives the misperception that NASA hasn't been very involved, and they are. And that occurs on many, many programs. So our committee thought it was certainly worthwhile to review Space Act agreements and contracts and any other form of OTAs or partnerships that NASA has for if and when the NASA logo should be utilized. There has been a, uh, whether it's perception or reality, that often using the NASA logo is prohibited when in fact that's not a legal barrier, that's a policy choice that's being made. And our committee thought it was worth just reviewing things to take a look at when it might be most beneficial to the agency to utilize logos and vice versa, you know, from a private sector perspective. So my hope is that we can further STEM education by having what's an inspirational logo with the NASA meatball and make everyone aware of when NASA is doing something as well as you know, gain more exposure to some of the incredible public-private partnerships that the agency is doing and the great private sector companies that are doing it. So I'm hoping that we can uh, address that with alacrity and get that NASA logo back out there where it belongs and vice versa to show public-private partnerships. Okay. Uh, I have a half a dozen more questions for you, but I'll have to save them for our next podcast. Uh, so I'll end with this. Uh, your next meeting is the end, end of this month. Uh, what issues are on the table and what do you want to tackle? So the next meeting that's coming up is actually the full NASA Advisory Committee mm-hmm. meeting. And what we're going to do in terms of an outbrief by our committee will be tackling just a couple of issues that remain that we didn't get to deal with last time. Intellectual property reform, probably the most prominent among them. We've also got a recommendation relative to just giving due prioritization to activities on the ISS where a company or companies have invested in developing hardware, uh, et cetera. We've got a recommendation relative to orbital debris, where we think there should be a whole-of-government approach that involves NASA, involves Department of Commerce, Department of State, the FAA, et cetera, rather than just having it centralized at one entity. some issues related to suborbital human tended payloads and just trying to get the rules and regulations clarified there. So some very interesting topics that we'll be bringing up, and I know that it will be a very interesting conversation as well with the other committees. We live in some exciting times, and I always look forward to the NAC meetings because now I get to get together with the other chairs and other folks to take a look at an even broader portfolio than we have in the regulatory and policy committee. So it should be a lot of fun. I hope to see you there, Mark. Uh, I don't think I'll be there in person, but if I I do believe this is, um, there is audio available and it, is it webcast? I do believe so. I do believe so. Jeez. You know, that's something maybe we should try in Canada. Just saying. Um, Transparency here is not quite it is in the States. Um, Okay, Mike, uh, thank you very much for your time. Um, It's been a pleasure talking to you. I don't know how many people, uh, you know, before they hear this podcast, understand how some of the NASA's advisory council uh, committees work. Uh, You've given us some insight into the one that you're on and, of course, which has a strong commercial uh, uh, aspect to it, which is important these days, in in my opinion. So thank you for being on the show, and I hope uh, we can get you back on uh, another time. 
I look forward to it, uh, Mark. Thank you for all you do, and uh, I hope I don't get in trouble with my listeners in Canada there if I say go Bruins. Oh, goodness. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube Podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash spacecq. We really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spacequ.ca, or you can post them on our website at spacequ.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.